Before we begin this podcast, I'd like to let the audience know that due to a technical glitch that was solely my fault, I ended up deleting the file from the podcast that we recorded today, and therefore the audio from this podcast will not be the scintillating clear audio that you are used to. Instead, we're going to be using the audio that we pulled from the video from the Zoom call that we did. And therefore, I want to apologize ahead of time that this particular episode is not going to maintain the same standards that the Eternal Ethics podcast has become known for. So I apologize for that. But hopefully, please God, next episode, we will not make that same glitch and the audio will be fantastic. So I hope you enjoy this. And again, apologies for the poor audio. And as always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. We are up to chapter four, Mishnah 15. Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua Omer. Rabbi Elazar, the son of Shamua, says... Now, because there were several Rabbi Elazars, it has to identify who the father was. So what did he say? What was his axiom? What was his aphorism? Let the honor of your students be as dear to you as your own honor. And the honor of your fellow, of your colleague, of your peer, that should be as the reverence of your teacher. And the reverence of your teacher should be as the reverence of heaven. So he's telling us we have to upgrade our respect, our honor, our reverence for our students, those who are beneath us, so to speak, our peers, and of course, our teachers that are above us. Now, Rabbi Elazar ben Shemua is one of the five students of Rabbi Akiva, who populated the world of Torah after the death of the original 24,000 students. And we've met all of, almost all of them in Perk Avos. Again, we know the story, Rabbi Kiva, in the times of the, of the Hadrianic persecution, about the 120s, 130s, he develops the largest academy of Torah students in the world. And over the course of several weeks, they all die in a plague. And he is left with exactly zero students. And undeterred, he heads south and he finds more students. And he develops five special students who go on to teach towards the next generation, each one of them being great heroes in their own right. One of those students is Rabbi Elazar ben Shamu. And remember, we spoke about this several times the Romans had banned the conference of smicha, of rabbinic ordination, on pain of death. And this one old rabbi ordained five students, the same five students, of Rabbi Akiva, and afterwards he was murdered in a grisly fashion by the Romans. Now, each one of these students became a great sage on their own merit, and there's this remarkable v-shaped recovery wherein you have 24,000 students and they have almost nobody and you have five students and each one of them developed their own academy and their own students and eventually Torah is once again beaming throughout the land and the Talmud tells us an interesting story about how many students he had this Rabbi Elizabeth ben Shamua tells us that when people would study Torah by him 
he had such a popular lecture and the study hall was so crowded that every square cubit had six students. Now, a cubit is about two, two and a half feet, maybe. Depends exactly how long a cubit is. But everyone was just so tightly packed together because like, maybe they didn't have a big room, maybe they were hiding, I don't know, it's not clear. But there were six students in each square cubit. That's how, that's how popular it was. And the Talmud also tells us that he was such a great sage and he was such a visionary for his students that many decades after he passed, they were discussing how great of a Torah scholar he was. And one of the rabbis says, well, the, the earlier generations, their hearts were really open wide to study Torah. And their hearts, in fact, were like the equivalent of the entrance of the temple. In the entrance of the temple, there's this big, big door, this big entrance hall, and it was 20 feet by 40 feet, 20 cubits by 40 cubits, and that was akin to the heart of the earlier sages. And the later sages, they weren't quite like the entrance hall of the temple. Instead, they were like the doorway of the sanctuary, which was much smaller. It was only 10 cubits by 20 cubits. And ours, this is observing the sages, again, sages of many years ago, our hearts, how, how big are they open to absorb Torah? Well, it's the equivalent of the eye of a needle. It's tiny. It's a small little micro hole. That's the only portal through which Torah can enter our heart. And by the way, this is people talking in the third century of the Common Era. And one of the major principles that we have of Jewish history and Jewish philosophy is that the closer you get back to Sinai, the bigger the hearts, the bigger the souls, the more Torah they could observe, they could absorb. And today, you know, we're talking about so many generations later, even if we go back a hundred years, 200 years, if you look at the, the, the scholarship, the rabbinic and Talmudic scholarship of the sages who lived 200 years ago, it's so staggeringly voluminous and you compare it to what we have today, and we see already a precipitous decline in the acuity, in the, in, the, in, the, in the Torah greatness from generation to generation. And all the more so when we talk about going back to the sages of the Talmud. And even within the sages of the Talmud, we say, well, the earlier ones are like, you know, 20 by 40. And the later ones are like 10 by 20. And it's just an interesting idea that is shared with relative to, relative to him that there is a marked decline in the ability that we have to absorb Torah. Now the Talmud says, okay, who, who are these early ones and who are these later ones? So it brings various opinions, but regardless, one of the opinions is that Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua was like the early ones. He was part of that earlier generation where people were really receptive to Torah. Now, the Midrash gives a very dramatic story about Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua. It tells that he was once walking along the seashore, and he saw a shipwreck. It was a Roman ship. Maybe it was an army ship. It was a merchant ship, whatever it was. And there was this very dramatic wave, and the wave just crashes down on the ship. And the ship is capsized, and everyone, or almost everyone, dies. And there is a sole singular survivor that gets swept onto the shore 
and he is a Roman, and he is naked, and he's surrounded by all Jews. And he's trying to cover himself up, and he's reaching out, he's calling to all the passerby, help me, help me, help me. And they say to him, Romans, we don't like Romans in these parts. We know what you have, y'all have done for us. We're not interested in helping you. So this exchange is very unpleasant. The Roman's naked, and he is trying to call for help from the passerby. And the Jewish passerby, justly, you may argue, they start cursing him. They say, we don't, we don't want you here. Get out of here. I'm not helping you. And then Rabbi Lazar Shamua walks by. And the Roman tells him, I can see that you're, you're not like them. You're, you're, you're special. You're a, you're a very fine, noble person. Maybe you could help me. So the great rabbi is wearing a bunch of layers of clothing. And he pulls up the, one of his layers and gives it to the Roman. And brings the Roman to his house and feeds him. And gives him money. And accompanies him on his way home. That's the story. And what would you know? Turns out that that Roman, many years later, becomes politically active and is involved in the political upper echelons of Rome and becomes the emperor. And when he becomes the emperor, he has this vendetta against those Jews and he makes these horrible, horrific decrees against the Jews. And of course, the rabbis have to nominate someone to go lobby their case to, to Rome to annul those horrific decrees, and they send Rabbi Elazar. And he walks into the room, and he's like, oh, I know you. But initially, they have this exchange. He tells him, well, is the Torah true or is the Torah not true? Of course, the rabbi says, the Torah is true. And he says to him, well, if the Torah is true, doesn't the Torah say that you have to be kind to strangers? And even if you have someone that is not someone that part of your tribe, someone you're associated with, you have to greet them with food and water in the event that they're needing. And therefore, the Jewish people that didn't provide that hospitality to me, they're guilty of capital crimes. They have to be killed. And the rabbi calmed him down. He assuaged him. And he said to him, yes, nevertheless, it's okay to be a little bit merciful. And eventually he gave him lots and lots of lavish gifts and he rewarded him handsomely and he annulled the decree. Now, Rabbi Elizabeth Shemua lived a very long life. He passed away at the age of 105. And even today, that's a pretty long life. And the Talmud, in the book of Medill, page 27a, the Talmud lists a bunch of rabbis that lived long lives and each one of the rabbis who lived a long life, their students, they inquired as to what merit did they have to have such a life of longevity. So, for example, uh, they asked Rabbi Zakkai, why did you live such a long life? And he says to them, well, my whole life, I made sure whenever I went to the bathroom, it was far from where I prayed and where I studied. And I never gave embarrassing nicknames to my friends. And I never withheld, refrained from reciting the, the Kiddush, the prayer that we use to inaugurate or to kickstart the Shabbat. I always, said, I always said it with wine. And in fact, even when we were very poor, we sold our last belongings to buy wine so we could make Kiddush, we could honor God and honor his Shabbat. And the Talmud gives a postscript to the story that because of their commitment 
always honor the Shabbat with wine, the Almighty enriched them. And when he died, when, when his mother died, she left him with 300 barrels of wine, which was um, obviously something, an appreciating asset that was worth a lot of money. And when he died, he left his children 3,000 barrels of wine. So they made off pretty well. And that's in the merit of their commitment to always doing the Kiddush with wine. And then it says that the students asked Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua, the author of our Mishnah, what merit did you have to live such a long life? So he responds, I never used the house of scholarship, the base medrash. I never used it as a shortcut. You know, if you want to get to the other side of the shul or to the other side of the, of, of the base medrash, sometimes the fastest way is to just cut through where you study. But that's, of course, not an honorable thing. We don't want to degrade the place where we study Torah and make it the place that we use to shave off a few minutes from our commute. I never did that my entire life. And I also made, was, was also very careful, whenever I would go to the lecture hall, I would, I would not climb over people to get to my seat. People used to sit on the floor. And if you wanted to get to your seat, you would have to climb over people. So the only way to avoid that is to come on time, or to come even a little bit early. And I made sure I always came early to the lecture hall, so that way I would not have to subject others to the indignity of having people climb, uh, to climb over them. And also, finally, and Tom goes on to list a whole bunch of rabbis and how long they lived with long lives and their students inquired, why do you live long? And each one of them gave the reasons for their longevity. Now, it doesn't seem to, you know, there doesn't seem to be a common denominator in all these stories. You know, if you were to read these stories, you'd say, okay, I could discover the secret to a long life. This is it. It's the Talmud after all. It's not just telling us useless information. It's telling us relevant information for us. All these rabbis live a long life, and they're able to identify. They're so capable. They knew so much Torah. They, they, they're able to know the exact reason why they lived a long life. So all I need to do is follow their instructions. The problem is that everyone's instruction is different. What does making sure that you have wine for Kiddush have to do with not using the base medrash, the place we study Torah, is a shortcut? They don't really have to, anything to do with each other. So our sages tell us a very deep insight. There is a common denominator with all of these attestments of the reason for long life. All of them begin with the following words. Me, my, my entire life. Each one of these sages found the one or two things that they always did. One or two customs, whatever it is. It's a good custom, a good practice, a good behavior. And they did it unfailingly. From the day they were born, from the day they have enough intellect to figure out what it is that's right and what's wrong, they stood by their principles, they stood by their values, they tenaciously maintained their, their good, their proper behavior, and they never once went away from it. And the insight is, and we'll explain what the insight is, but the insight is that when someone has a good character trait, it doesn't matter what it is. If someone has a good character trait and they make sure that that becomes something that is non-negotiable, that's something which is such a priority, it doesn't matter what it is you know, in, in absolute terms. 
Is, is it so important to not make the, 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 the shul, to not make the synagogue, to make the place we study Torah, to study all, to make a shortcut? Is that the most important thing in the world? Yeah, it's important, but is it the most, it's not the most important thing in the world. But when someone commits themselves, says, this is my thing, and this is something that I'm going to stand by, and I'm not going to depart from, and I'm not going to negotiate, no matter what, that becomes something that provides them life and vitality. And it's interesting. The Talmud asked the question, why was the temple destroyed? Temple was the most important institution in the Jewish world, and it was around for 400 years plus. And then it was destroyed. And then they rebuilt the second temple, and it too was around for 400 years plus, and it too was destroyed. And the question is, Talmud asked the question, why were these temples destroyed? What merit did we lose when these temples were destroyed? So Talmud tells us the first temple, the reason why it was destroyed is because the Jewish people did the three cardinal sins, idolatry, adultery, and murder. Jewish people, you know, they committed the most grievous crimes possible, and consequently, they lost the divine protection, and that allowed the Babylonians to come to the temple. But what about the second temple? Talmud tells us the second temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred of one Jew to another Jew. Now the question is, why specifically, like these particular sins? You know, what's the sin that destroys the temple? You would think if it's, you know, if it's the three cardinal sins, well, then that should be needed to destroy the second temple as well. Why is there a disparity between what destroys, what's the kryptonite of the temples, first temple, second temple? So the Maharal, one of the great uh, Jewish philosophers of all time, and of course, great Torah sages, he says, and he identifies this, this principle. He says that the first temple and second temple are very different. The first temple had the indelible presence of God there at all times. There was tremendous holiness at the, at the base of the temple. That was the essence of the temple. God was there. God's presence dwelt amongst them. There was holiness permeating the entire temple. And therefore, the central characteristic of the Jewish nation at the time was holiness. It was not unity. In fact, for the bulk of the time, the Second Temple, the Jewish people were very much not united. There was the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. There was the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were at odds. They were enemies. The Jewish people were separated, were, were, were fractured. There wasn't unity. But you know what there was? There was holiness. There was purity. And that is the merit that kept, so to speak, God's presence in the temple. And that was the merit that kept the temple extant. And therefore, once they departed from their particular character, their particular behavior, that was the engine driving the temple being standing, once they lost that, the temple was destroyed. The second temple, there wasn't so much holiness amongst the Jewish people. And in fact, the presence of God was not in the temple as it was in the first temple. But you know what the Jewish people did have? They had unity. And the unity itself 
that was the merit that caused the temple to endure. Once the Jewish people start fighting, once they lose the characteristic that contributed to the temple remaining standing, they lost the temple, the temple was destroyed. I think this is a very powerful insight. I think it could be very relevant to us as well. Everyone's born with certain character traits, certain good behaviors, certain bad behaviors. You know, everyone's a mixed bag. And it's always a dilemma if someone wants to improve themselves, someone wants to perfect themselves, what should they do? Should they focus on reinforcing their strengths or should they try to plug in the gaps and try to fix the parts of their, of their character repertoire that are imperfect and try to round themselves out? Here we see perhaps an answer. The most important thing is to preserve what you already have. Before you go on a mission of conquest to try to get better and bigger, you have to make sure that you're not going to imperil what you already have. In fact, my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, everyone is born with one character trait that is absolutely scintillatingly perfect. And he would note, sometimes you see children that even if they know they're going to get punished, they say the truth. That child is born with a characteristic of truth, with that attribute, perfect. Okay, so suppose you know that. How do you use that knowledge to your advantage? What you do is like this. If someone preserves and maintains and does not negotiate at all, if they preserve and maintain that one characteristic, just clinging to it and not departing from it for a second, that will ensure that all the other, they'll have a ripple effect. It will ensure that all the other characteristics will get fixed. The way to fix your characteristics in general is to identify and isolate the one characteristic that you have that's perfect, cling to it, never depart from it, never allow it to lapse. And through that, due to the interdependence of character, through that, you'll be assured that all your character traits will be fixed. Fascinating insight. But that, I think, maybe relates to this idea. When you have something that you have that's good, it doesn't matter what it is. You clean it, you maintain it, it's going to give you an enduring life, both in the form of the temple, once you stick to what you you know, to what brought you there, to stick to your characteristics that are good, stick to that, and you will endure. And similar to the people, how, how do you live a long life? All these sages say different things, but the one thing they agree upon that there was something, whatever it is, it could be minor, something that they stick to and they don't depart from and they're not willing to negotiate upon. It is totally inflexible, it's immutable, they stick to it, and that is, so to speak, the one thing that can keep them going. So our Belzman Shamua tells us that when we have a student, we have to honor him the way we are. Obviously, it's a question. Wait a minute. I'm the rabbi. I'm the teacher. I'm the superior. And then I have a student. You know, they're the charge. They're the pupil. Why am I elevating them to be on the same level as me? 
And then it says, well, if I have a peer, if I have a colleague, someone who is on the same level as me, I have to elevate them as well. That I don't treat them like a peer, I treat them like, like a teacher. And if I have a teacher, if I have a rabbi, even though a rabbi I'm certainly going to give more honor to, but I have to record them. I have to up, upgrade them as well and accord them the same respect, the same reverence that I give to God. So all the commentators trying to figure out what exactly is going on, what's the rationale for this. So I saw one insight that I think is very useful, very powerful. The Ruach Chaim, or Chaim Velazhner, tells us that this is not telling us that we should accord a person more honor than they, than they deserve. After all, if someone's a student, they deserve less honor than the, than the teacher. The teacher, the peers, deserve less honor than the rabbis, than, 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 than the people who are superior. So why are, we, why are we misaligning, misappropriating honor and giving the students as much honor as the teacher and so on? So he explains, there is a natural tendency for people to underappreciate others. We tend to assume that people, are all, that people are lower than what they really are, which is why we have such a difficult time in judging favorably. We tend to notice the bad in other people. That jumps out at us. And in order to find the good, you really have to seek it out. Loving your fellow as yourself is a big challenge because we tend to see the bad that really surfaces of other people but the good, you really have to investigate to find it. So what this is telling us is, this instruction is to try to correct for the normal tendency that we have to underappreciate people and therefore to give them less honor and less respect than they are due. To correct that, we're told you have to always give people more. Whenever there's a question of how much honor should I give someone, how much respect should I give someone, always give them more. You know what? Not because... You're giving them more honor than they deserve, but most likely you're giving them the correct amount of honor and you just don't originally assume, you don't realize how much honor they truly deserve. It's a fascinating insight. I think that it stands more broadly to our lives. You know, where we live in a society and we are surrounded by people and there's a natural tendency. This is found in other sources as well. We are predisposed to only notice the bad in other people. When someone does something bad, you see it right away. When someone has a flare-up of bad character, it's immediately evident to all. But when someone does something noble, when someone does something kind, we tend to not notice it. It's certainly not as visceral as when they do something bad. And therefore, we're being nudged, we're being directed to always accord someone more honor, more respect, even more reverence than they deserve, because in all likelihood, we're underappreciating them. I think there's such an optimistic view on humanity. You know, we've, we've gotten very cynical, just as a society, as things get more polarized and politicized, you know, politics is just everywhere. We've gotten cynical. And this is, I think, such a, such a heartwarming optimistic view on people that everyone really is good and everyone is motivated to be good 
And we tend to ascribe to other people when they do something good, that's an aberration. When they do something bad, that's their character. When we see someone doing something good, we don't necessarily apply upon them a label and say, wow, what a noble, what a kind, what a generous, what a good person. Someone done something bad, conversely, we're very quick to identify them. What a terrible, angry, horrific. We could come up with a lot of bad nicknames for people. That's natural. And we see here even in the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is trying to tell us, open up our eyes. Again, a very optimistic and heartwarming way. Other people are more likely to be better than we assume. And therefore, we have to always be upgrading their honor because you know what? That's really what they deserve. And the commentators here bring various examples from scripture of this actually happening. So Moses is the teacher of Joshua. So Moses is the teacher and Joshua is the student. Yet in their very first interaction between Moses and Joshua, that appears in the middle of the book of Exodus, the first war that the Jewish people have to undertake is against Amalek. Moshe goes to the top of the mountain, lifts up his hands. He has Aaron on one side, he has Hur on the other side. Whenever he lifts up their hands, they win. Whenever he puts their hands down, they lose. But who's down in the valley? Who's actually engaging in the fight? That's Joshua. And he was nominated by Moshe. But when Moshe nominates him, this is chapter 17 of Exodus, Bechar lanu anashim, select for us people. Go find warriors for us. What Moshe is doing here, he is putting himself on the same level as Joshua. Of course, he's the teacher. He's the superior, but he's elevating Joshua and giving him honor as if it was him. That's on the same level. And then what happens when there's two peers, two colleagues? You have Aaron and Moshe. They're brothers. Aaron's even older. And they're the two leaders of the Jewish people. Yet, when Aaron is lobbying Moshe to pray that their sister Miriam is healed, he calls him Be Adoni, my master. He's again elevating him one notch higher. And finally, what, how does Joshua relate to Moses? So this is not teacher to student, student to teacher. This is also in the book of Numbers. We will read it in a couple of weeks. And this is when Moshe nominates 70 sages to become prophets. And then you have two of the prophets that remain in the camp, Eldad and Medad. And then they give prophecy right away, instantly. And they start saying, Moshe is going to die. And Joshua is going to lead the nation into Israel. And there's a big crowd thronging, congregating around these people. And Joshua runs to Moshe and says to him, Adoni, my master, destroy them. These people, they're saying you're going to die. And you're, they're saying, I'm going to lead the people of the nation. What a terrible thing. These people have to be executed. Why would these people need to be executed? The rationale is because Joshua revered his teacher as if he was God, with the same degree. And when someone rebels against God, 
of course, that's a capital offense. And therefore, in Joshua's eyes, to rebel against Moshe is like, likewise a capital offense. And of course, Moshe says, no, I wish all the people were prophets. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. So Moshe, of course, doesn't do anything, doesn't punish them at all. But it does show us that Joshua viewed Moshe with the highest esteem and almost on the same level with the same reverence that we have for the Almighty. Now, incidentally, the source of this idea is found in the Talmud, in the book of Psalm, page 22b. It tells of a great sage whose name was Shimon Ha'am Sunni, and he would always derive every word of the Torah. There's no extra words in the Torah. And therefore, when it says the word S, and the word S is really hard to translate because there is no English equivalent, but S, or Kabed, or Et, depends how you pronounce it. Kabed Et Avicha, honor your father. It could say Kabed Avicha, but it adds that middle word. It's kind of like a glue word to connect the, uh, the, the, the verb and the noun. So I'm not a philologist. I don't know exactly what it is in past participle. But it's, it's a word that only appears in Hebrew, and it's like an extra word. And every time you have this word, it's an extra word, this great sage would derive what the lesson is. And every time, there's, there's hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of times in the Torah where it says the word et. And every time, every time he would get to one, he would say, okay, what, what is this teaching us? What's this extra word teaching us? Until he arrived at one verse. Et, or es, Hashem tira. You should fear Hashem your God. What can you possibly add to God? God has no peers. So he's like, oh my goodness, I got a problem. I, can't, I have no way to add to the honor, to the fear of God. And therefore he said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm quitting my project. And he announced, just as I got, I got reward for undertaking the project to begin to try to understand every word of the Torah, I'm also going to get a reward for, for departing from it. And no one really knew how to figure out what this extra word meant until came along Rabbi Akiva and said, this is telling us that the Torah scholars, they, to a certain degree, we should accord the same honor that we would accord God. And that's, of course, our Mishnah. And Rabbi Elizabeth Shamu, the author of Mishnah, you would imagine he studied that from his teacher, Rabbi Akiva. Now, my favorite source regarding this particular matter is the Mishnah in Babatia, page 33a. It's talking about lost objects. When someone loses an object or you find a lost object, it's your duty, it's your mitzvah to return it to the original owner. But the Talmud is dealing with the question, suppose you see a lost object and you see another lost object and you have to choose which one you could save because you'll, you can only save one. So imagine you're on a boat and you know, one lost object falls off on this side, one falls off on that side, and you have to jump into one direction and not the other, and you can only save one. So if it's your lost object, then that comes in front of everyone. You have to save your own things before it. That, that, that's your responsibility. It's your stuff. It's your possessions. And therefore, you have the right to save it before you save anyone else's, your father's, your teacher's. 
But what about if you're on a boating trip with your rabbi and your teacher and your, and your father? And your dad's phone goes one direction, your rabbi's phone goes the other direction. And you can only save one of them. They're too old, too frail, let's say. They can't jump in. So you have, you have to make a split-second choice. You have to jump in one way or the other. Which one gets precedence? For it's your father. It's your father. You have to honor your father. Your father brought you into this world. You have to accord a lot of honor with your father. One of the Ten Commandments, you've got to honor your parents. But your rabbi, your rabbi teaches you Torah. Says the Mishnah, Avedas Aviv, Avedas Rabbo. The lost object of your father and your rabbi shall rabbo kademis. The lost object of your rabbi takes precedence. Why? Because your father brings you to this world. And your rabbi teaches you Torah. He brings you to the next world. And which world is more important? The temporary ephemeral world that your father brought you to? Or the permanent spiritual world, spiritual world that your rabbi brings you to? Of course, the permanent spiritual world is even more important than the world that your father brought you to. And therefore, both these people, they're both people that are helping you get into worlds. But you know what? We have to evaluate, we have to judge which world is more important. And the world of your rabbi, the world that your rabbi brings you to is more important, and therefore you have to have more affinity to him. I was thinking, you know, the, the source of honoring your rabbi and having reverence for your rabbi and the source for honoring and fearing your parents are both juxtaposed to honoring and fearing God. Seems like the message is that, of course, God brings you, God brought you to this world. And God, hopefully, you know, we hope that the Almighty is going to bring us, going to usher us into the next world. But the Almighty has partners in those endeavors. And, of course, your parents are the partners with God to bring you to this world. And those who inspire you spiritually, those who teach you Torah, they are the partners with God to usher you in to the next world. And because your rabbi brings you to Omabat, to the permanent world, that is, uh, he is worthy of more honor than your father. Very interesting insight. So this is the teaching of Elizabeth Shamua. Again, one of the sages who rebuilds Torah after the devastation of the Hadrianic persecutions, soon of Rabbi Akiva, he had a study hall. He lived a very long life. And he's teaching us to accord honor to our students, to elevate them. He's teaching us to, when we have our peers, to elevate them as well. He's teaching us to elevate our teachers. He's always teaching us to elevate the honor of others. And we could maybe speculate the Talmud tells us that Rabbi Kiva's 24,000 students, they died. They died in a plague. Why they died in a plague? The Talmud book of Yuvamas tells us that they did not accord each other sufficient honor. And these were righteous people. These were great sages. But they didn't give each other enough honor. 
And then we see the next generation. Rabbi Kiva, he loses 24,000 students, and he moves on to the next generation. And one of them is Rabbi Elizabeth Shavua. And he's teaching us the way to avoid the mistake of his predecessors. And the way to make sure that you're always giving people enough honor is to give them more honor than you think they deserve. And you know what? Then you'll do, you'll do a good job. So it's very, very powerful. I think also very, a very topical, germane insight for our times to always try to give people more than they deserve. And you know what? In all likelihood, they are deserving it. And what is the worst thing of giving someone a little bit more honor than they deserve? When someone withholds honor from someone else, we see what it did to the students of Rabbi Kiva. It is quite destructive. And therefore, we should make sure that everyone that we encounter, we give them not only what they deserve or what we think they deserve, give them even more honor than they deserve. And then we are assured that we're giving them at least the minimum requisite amount that they deserve.